welcome to Knock On Podcast, where we bring you archery information and education that you can trust. Knock On was created as a way to bring all archers together, regardless of the brand you choose or the style of archery you shoot. Knock On Podcasting will deliver professional insights to the latest gear, proper shooting technique, along with high-level equipment setup and tuning. Hey, everybody. Welcome to a Knock On Podcast. And... um it's late at night. Cheers. There you go. Some of you asked, said you had a long drive for a hunting trip tomorrow. I forgot the guy's name. I saw it in my feed, said, we really need a podcast, dud. We're dri- making a long drive. So guess what? I'm here with my good buddy, Joe. Yeah, we, uh, we sat in a tree all day. So <laughs> <laughs> we came back starving and we're like, God, we're so hungry. We didn't do anything all day. <laughs> Well, we did a lot of anticipation, a lot of waiting. We saw a ton of deer. And, uh, man, you know, some people say, oh, you got to come out to my place. It's the best. Once you get there, you won't believe how good it is. But when it comes to, like, hunting spots, I've never been more impressed than by your place. Never. Uh, people that have told me their place is great, a bunch of people, love them to death. They're great. Not, no, I mean, and their place was really good. But... We saw, I don't know how many deer today. I mean, conservatively, I'll say we saw like 25 deer. But there's a lot, there's a lot of deer. But do you think we have more monsters? Do you think I'm extreme on my methods? Oh, yeah, for sure. But I knew that coming in. (laughs) I I knew that based on your archery methods and your methods of teaching. And, you know, I understand. You're doing it the right way. You're doing everything the right way. You're doing your archery the right way. You're doing your archery instruction the right way. You're doing um, everything the right way, and uh, it's it's super important, man. I mean, we've we talked about that this week, but I think what you're doing for archery, as far as like archery education and and giving people these podcasts and and just giving them the depth of your knowledge, because there's levels to things. There's levels to everything. There's levels to, you know, whether it's martial arts or whether it's auto mechanic knowledge or anything. There's levels. Some people know a little bit. Some people pretend they know more than they know. And then every now and then you go, Jesus Christ, how, what, what is this guy talking about? Like, that's you. That's you and your podcast. You just go, <laughs> you just go so far, so deep off the deep end that, like, even archery dorks, you know, and I'm an archery dork for sure, obviously fairly novice i've only been shooting for four years but in those four years like i'll listen to your podcast and i'll learn new stuff not just new stuff but learn about new subjects and i'll go Mm. oh there's no end the rabbit hole goes deep yeah it does it definitely is a crazy deep water uh, rabbit hole yeah so you take that you take that (laughs) extreme to everything including the way you manage this insane farm you have out here it's amazing what um did you like riding in on bikes yeah, these electric bikes, folks. John's got these bikes that you pedal, and they, it's like electric assist. Is that what, what yeah, the, the way felt, to describe it? Felt outfitters, amazing bikes. Like if you're a person who has resigned yourself to walking on long hills and hoofing it, and nothing wrong with getting in that exercise, folks. But if it comes between getting on one of those bikes and getting there literally ten times faster, yep. I mean, we're on those bikes, and you're barely pedaling, and you're going uphill. Yeah. <laughs> and you don't break a sweat going to your stand, too. Exactly. That's a huge part. Yeah. You know, we learned 
Well, today I told you a big part of why I like using bikes for going to stands is just because you're putting a lot less imprint to the ground. You know, right now, big bucks, as you saw, have their nose to the ground and they're they're trying to pick up scent. You know, if they don't have a doe, they're trying to find a doe. So all of their focus, like sometimes we rattled today and even a deer that's right there, it wouldn't even look at us or I was grunting at it. And that, you know, remember that one tonight, mm-hmm. he wouldn't even look because his brain is so honed in on what his nose is smelling. He was just trying to figure out which way that doe had walked out of that field mm-hmm. evidently. So when their nose is getting a hundred percent of their mental capacity. The last thing you want to do is have feet prints on the ground mm. because they're going to be like, wait a minute, human here. So I just think the association between the tire and the human foot are a big separation. I think you can kill a lot more animals by utilizing a bike and they don't really recognize the sound. I mean, look at tonight we rode up on, Probably one of the better deer we saw literally rode up on it and stopped, and then it it never even heard us or looked back. We were about fifty yards from it, maybe. Yeah, fifty. Literally got off the bikes and tried to tried to get a shot. And it's a big buck. I mean, there's a big mature whitetail. Uh, it was interesting today too because we saw one earlier today that one that went up the the uh, trail that you said don't shoot him. We should give the date, too. It's November yes. 2nd, by the way. So there's different phases of how this rut plays out. And this is an important part of the puzzle because we're right on the front end. We think that we saw the first buck with a doe at first light because he was definitely on a doe, and he was one of the better bucks. Yeah, he was huge. And then we saw another one afterwards, the one that came up the uh, road that um you said don't shoot him you said he was a really nice buck but for anywhere else you'd be psyched but for this place hang on there (laughs) well i think the reason why you have deer that are above that is because those ones continually walk by quality management yeah Yeah. Yeah. so there was that one but then what happened was we decided to get that actually is my fault because you (laughs) said 130 and I think at like 125, I might have said, well, what do you think? Should we call it? And you're like, eh, okay, let's go get some lunch. So uh, I grab my bow. I grab my stuff. I lower the bow. I climb down. I get to the bottom. You go dig up. And you, you, John's holding his hands like Bowwinkle. Like he's got his, his thumbs on the side of his head, like touching his head and his fingers representing antlers. And then he's pointing like that. I'm like, oh, no. I got on the ground. Sure enough, uh, one smaller deer comes our way. And uh, it's just a, you know, a young deer. And behind him was a fully mature buck. Who looked at me, he recognized me. I was frozen solid, sitting standing right next to a tree. But he looked at me and the intensity and fear and urgency in his eyes when he locked <laughs> eyes with me. It's like all of a sudden he's like, What are you? and turned and bolted. But I instantly got a newfound respect for um, how hard it is to hunt these things and how intelligent they are, how tuned in they are. Because oh, yeah. he saw me, and there was this, like, like he was radiating his reaction. It's like, <gasps> yeah. 
He looked, and it was crazy. Like he was so aware. It was so different than the younger deer. The younger deer are kind of dopey. They don't really know what's going on. Like that one that wandered before him. Yeah. The one wandered right by me. Yeah. I'm standing on that uh, little road with my shoulder touching the tree, and I just froze. And this young deer. I forgot deer, about that. He yeah. walked five yards from you. Five yards, and he was probably like a year old. Yeah. Probably a year old deer. Yeah. Two-year-old, maybe? Maybe two-year-old. And he walked you know, just a couple yards away from me. I mean, if I wanted to kill him, it would have been the easiest shot of all time. <laughs> it would have been, it would have been, it would, even if he ran, I still would have been able to kill him. Like, if I came to full draw and he ran, I would have been able to kill him. That's how close he was. But um, then there was another one that came by afterwards. So there's three deer total that came by. Yeah. And the big one that came by last, if I just stayed up, in that tree for that extra five minutes, like literally at the one thirty mark, like you called it. You're like, we'll give it to one thirty. If I waited to one thirty exactly, that sucker would have came down. He would have been inside of thirty yards, and we quite possibly, depending upon where he was standing, would have had an opportunity. Yeah, I think it would have been a guarantee. I tried to soft sell you on the fact that it's. <laughs> Here's the deal. It's the first day, and whenever you go on a hunt for the first time, and and actually, I I shot my buck. I can't remember. I think it might have been the 22nd or 23rd. So it's been 10 days ago since I shot my deer, and because you were coming, um, I did not want... One, I didn't want to go because I do have a second tag, so I knew you were coming. I didn't want to shoot another deer. Um, and that's the, good because I want to see you shoot a deer. Well, and the other thing too is this time of year is so special to me. I couldn't imagine myself not having a deer tag During in the, the month of the month of November because mm. it's just so fun when everything really happens the right way for whitetails. You have a whole new appreciation. You know, I made a post last week. I said I really I feel torn between. If whitetail rut was at the exact same time as elk mm. during the bugle, I I honestly think if I had to choose, mainly just because of the amount of whitetails I shot, I think I would probably do the elk. But when you shoot a fully mature whitetail, and especially like we, you talked to Sharon about the buck she shot, which isn't that big one in the other room. And, By the way, uh, we should tell the number. Yep. That you said. Yeah. The Sharon hunted for Se- 700 hours. Yep. She shot that buck hours. on the 700th hour. She had hunted just over th- two or three years, and she had put it in 700 hours. That's incredible. Before and But she, she could have shot deer, but she really, you know, one, we were filming it, which makes it tough. Two, she was shooting a low poundage, which we really needed like a 20 to 25-yard shot broadside. Um, a lot of the deer that we had seen were coming in fast during the rut. They didn't stop. I mean, there it's not like she never saw deer. It's just the opportunity had to be right. And actually, we call that buck half rack because the year before she shot him, um, we were. I was hunting, and there were so many deer this one morning. I had a hot doe right around me on this pond, and this doe just kept coming by, and every time she came by, he was on her. And it wasn't a deer I wanted to shoot, but I'm like, this is a great deer for Sharon's first buck. So I called Sharon. She had taken Harry to school, and I said, get your stuff and 
come here. I'll tell you, I'll walk you, like I'll guide you through to get to the stand. Because I, I could see from the stand, it was so high, I could see. So I had her park, and literally as she's parking the car like four or 500 yards away, here comes the doe right by me with that buck again. So I told her, I said, they're right here. I said, okay, they left, come on in. So she's like, come, and I tell her, go left, go right. And I have her come right to the tree. She comes up, and then all of a sudden, she's in there a few minutes, and here's this doe, comes running by, and I'm like, get ready here he comes and she pulls back and i could hear him grunting the whole way and he pops out and he's got one half of his rack and she was at full draw and she's like i don't know if i want my first deer to be a half rack <laughs> and i'm like it's up to you babe you can do what you want she just said i would rather not shoot a half rack so fast forward to the next year he ended up being one of the best deer on all the properties that I've got so did permission he break off for. his entire animal? Yeah, it was all gone. So wow. the next year he grew, but he was a year older and he grew really nice. He was, like I said, he was the biggest deer that I had on camera. And I never saw him not one time the entire year. And then Sharon was out the day before shotgun season. It was the last day of archery season. And we're sitting there and it's just starting to fade light. And I look out the bail blind window and here he is, like, in the beans at 18 yards with his head down feeding. And I'm like, half rack. I said, he's he's right here. And she's like, what? And she lo- I look over, and she's like, oh, my gosh, that's him. And she pulls back, and she's aiming on him. And I heard her let off her safety on her evolution. So I knew she was pulling. And as I was filming, I, like, looked over to see how she was kind of holding for her stability. And I could tell that her broadhead was below the window. And she was getting ready to shoot right oh, into no. the steel <laughs> window. Oh, no. So I go, babe, don't shoot, don't shoot, don't shoot. And she's like, what? And I said, put your finger on the safety. So she lets down. Because, I mean, this buck's 18 yards. Right. And it's a mature deer. So I just said, you got to get higher. I said, because he's so close and she's so short with her shooting from that blind elevated, she couldn't get high enough. So I said, you got to like stand halfway up, but not all the way up. Whoa. And she tried doing that, but with the angle, she ended up having to wait, I think like 12 minutes before that buck went from my window to her window. But to be 18 yards from a five-year-old deer... And it's like dead, dead quiet, and there's two people in a blind. It was so, it was so nerve wracking. But it was awesome. Well, you definitely learned. Yeah, they're so tuned in. Rather, that that deer when he looked at me today, man, that was so intense. It makes sense, you know. For us, it's fun trying to get some delicious venison, having a good time, shooting some archery, doing a little hunting. For him. He's only been alive for like four years. <laughs> this dude's coming along trying to end it tonight. How old he, do you think he was? Like a four-year-old buck? He was. He could have been four. I think he was probably three. But he definitely looked at you like he knew you were a ninja. Like he, he's like, this dude's here to jack me right now. He knew exactly that. His yeah. eyeballs got really big. It's just so, it was so intense. It was so intense locking eyes with him. like, Like almost like... If he could have run at me and killed me, 
He's like, he didn't have that option, but he was thinking, what are the options here? <laughs> you know, can I run at this guy and kill him? What the, what is that thing in his hand? Well, there was, so, there was so much intensity. Do you remember last week when I shot my big deer? I sent you a text and I said, these poor deer, they go 340 days a year and never get seen. And then they literally get, they get a boner for two weeks and, and they just totally go full retard. Yeah. They just get whacked. Yeah. And, and you're, you're I don't mean that in a mean way. That's from a, that's a movie quote. So I'm safe by saying it. That's from Tropic Thunder. If you need to look it and up. We need to keep retard in the vernacular. It does not have anything to do with down syndrome does not have anything to do with any disease. It has to do with dumb people. <laughs> it's a great word for dumb people. And we need to stop this language police. Everybody's worried about offending everybody. And everybody's trying to pull words out of the dictionary. Language conveys intent. It always has. It always will. And becoming the language police and stopping certain words, these magic words, just gives those words more power. To free, for people like me who are never going to stop using them. <laughs> <laughs> what? Um, you told me you have a podcast coming up with a really cool guest. Oh, yeah. That was Jordan Peterson. He's the uh, professor at the University of Toronto that is dealing with uh, – they passed legislation in Toronto where you have to accept 31 different gender pronouns – like here's here's the you know what that means is for people who don't know like there's he and she right there's there's male pronouns and there's female pronouns well they want a bunch of options other than male and female instead of like I'm over John Dudley's house he is a famous archer his podcast is called Knock On instead of that I would I would have to say they or them. Like, I'm over John Dudley's house. They is a famous archer. <laughs> Them podcast is knock on. Like, literally, it's that ridiculous. And It has to be that vague to where you're not categorizing. That, see, that's, that's the most reasonable. That's the they and them people. The they and them people are asking folks to use they and them pronouns. I get that almost in a way. See, like... I'm a man, you're a man, There's, we know women, but I know weirdos. I know people that are lost in some sort of strange middle position in the, and I don't mean weirdo in a bad way, I mean they got a strange genetic and social role of the dice, and maybe maybe they don't like sex, maybe they're totally asexual, maybe they, they don't want to be a, a man, because they say, oh, these guys, men are all dicks. I don't want to be a woman. Those bitches are crazy. You know, so I want to be a them. I want to be one of them. I get that. I kind of get that. It doesn't seem logical when you're using they and them instead of he, she, or, you know. I feel like it almost categorizes them more. In a way, it does. But they seems way more unpersonal to me. Yeah, but they want that. They just want non sexual. They want, like, so you can never tell whether it's male or female. So, but that is the most reasonable. The least reasonable is Facebook, which recognizes 58 different gender pronouns. <laughs> what? <laughs> 58. But this guy, this professor, Jordan Peterson, what's interesting about him is he is 
What he's protesting is the legislation of this. He's not protesting people wanting to use it. He's protesting you trying to make him use it. Like if you want to call yourself Z, Z-H-E-E is one. Here is one. H-I-R is one. There's like a slew of them. And they're just making them up. They're is just literally making them up. That's just a word that's never been used? Exactly. It's a non-used word. It's non... It's Well... Well, a word is a word once you decide it's a word, right. right? Once we all decide it's a word. Like, there's a bunch of words that are in the the English language today, you know, that didn't exist before. There's a bunch of definitions that didn't exist before. You know, I'm sure you could rattle them off if you have the time. You could come up with a bunch of weird words that we, we use today that nobody ever used before. And we accept them after a while, and they become a part of the dictionary. But... These, the, these are just, they don't, this, the only purpose they serve is to make people special without doing anything special. Yeah. So that's why they like it. They're like, you know, I am a, a roar, you know, I'm not a he, I'm not a she, don't call me that. Like in this one, one of the videos that I watched, this Dr. Jordan Peterson is, he's communicating with this woman. And he says, well, what she's asking me to do... And she goes, don't call me that! Like She doesn't want to be called a she. She? She. Like, it's offensive. Wow. Yeah. I don't know. Well... But, you know, that's one of the cool things about having a podcast. You could have these guys who... These guys essentially on the front line of what's going on in Canada. Canada is very different than the United States. Because Canada has censorship. See, one of the beautiful things about the United States is the First Amendment. The Bill of Rights, the First Amendment, the freedom of speech. Freedom of speech is a beautiful thing. It's so important. It's so important. And it's not just freedom of speech if you agree with it. It's freedom of speech where people can say even offensive things. And we live in the marketplace of ideas. So if you think that someone's offensive, don't communicate with that person anymore. Choose to cut them out of your life. But... To say that they can't say what they're saying, as long as they're not out there saying, hey, you know, we should shoot Obama and burn down the White House. Who's in? Well, that's, you know, you're you're advocating hate crimes. You're advocating violence. That's one kind of elimination of what you would call free speech. But there's a lot of people that think that if, like, here's a law that got passed in New York City. If you misgender someone, okay, so if someone's a transgender person, who has one of these 31 different pronouns, or 58 if you're on Facebook. If you misgender that person, you can be sued for $250,000. You can be fined for $250,000 for misgendering them. If you're an employee or if you're a landlord... Things along those lines. So if you're in a bo- if you're in a boss type position, mm-hmm. exactly, and you misgender. So if you decide, you know, I'm tired of being John. I want to be John and Nana, and uh, John and Nana is a non-binary person, and do not misgender me. You know, I'm a H-I-R. You know, uh, you could refer to me as Z-H-E-E-Z or H-I-R or they or them, but never call me a he or her. You're like I can't keep track of this. Why wouldn't they? Why wouldn't all people? Why wouldn't the government just say you have to address all people only by their name? That's not a bad idea. That's not a bad idea. I mean, then there's no take away the pronouns. Right? Yeah, take away that crap. Just say John. And talk yeah. about everyone in third person. Right, and then you know when you run into a you know 
Space Dust Supreme or whatever this person's name is that wants to <laughs> <laughs> wants to be referred to in this really radical way, you could just say, "Hey, well, listen, Space Dust Supreme, I respect your rights, and uh, I'm not trying to have sex with you, so I don't really care what you are, yeah. a him or a her. Or, can I just uh, get a grande latte and, and get out of your Starbucks? Yeah, <laughs> throw some of that chili mocha powder on there you got going right now for Thanksgiving." But, uh, you know, that's one of the cool things about being able to do a podcast like mine where I don't, I just, you know, I could do any subject. <laughs> I want a t-shirt. What's it called? Space Star Supreme. <laughs> Space Dust Supreme. <laughs> I just made I like that, that one. Someone's probably going to name their kid that. <laughs> well, this is officially the least archery related knock on podcast. It is, but it isn't. Because what we're talking about is about nonsense. We're talking about things that not only don't matter, but they're massive distractions. And one of the beautiful things about archery. Oh, I like how you're bringing this back in. Bring it back in. One of the beautiful things about archery is it is a non-negotiable reality. If you do it with correct technique and you have practiced correctly and you've put in the hours and learned your lessons, you can get to the point where you have that perfect release and that arrow goes towards that target. It doesn't matter if you're non-binary, if you're transgender, or if you're a manly man like a John Dudley, you know, or a, a, a womanly woman like a Mae West. Or so. I don't know why I came up with Mae West. <laughs> but, but you're Doctor Phil in this sucker. I I'm like trying. How you brought it around. Well, archery is um, it's a discipline, and I, I honestly think that that's what a lot of these people that are complaining about all this stuff, what they lack in life is difficult things to overcome, not meaning like that social injustice isn't difficult or dealing with discrimination isn't difficult. I don't mean that. I mean uh, discipline, a discipline, like a martial art or like archery, things along those lines. I think even uh, marathon running or yoga, I think disciplines are very important for people. Because I think, you know, you can call them games or you can call archery a pastime, but... I think that it's more than that. I think the human mind requires working on things that are extremely difficult. I yeah. think it's it's a very important thing. Yeah, you know? I 100% agree. One of the one of the hardest times for me when when I was first going through the immigration process with Sharon, and I was in England. I think I was in England every 30 days for two to three years. Every 30 days I was there, 30 days and I was back. And it was really hard because, it, you know, I'm used to my lifestyle here to where I can go. If I'm here at my house, I can practice. If I go to my place of business, I could practice. Like, I could practice anywhere. I always had ranges. I've got, it's just like you with your dumbbells and stuff. You like to have stuff set up to where if you're at, if you're at work podcasting, you could step away and do that or if you're at home you could step away and do that but when i was in england you couldn't shoot you couldn't just shoot in your yard it wasn't big enough and it wasn't Mm. allowed so then you got to belong to a club well then the clubs only have certain hours over there so you you know we only got to shoot indoor archery once a week on saturdays i had to join a club called um, blundela sands archery club and i could shoot only on saturdays and it was so hard to stay competitive because you were literally only getting to do it once a week. Wow. I mean, it, it was a totally different thing. And so what I did was I ended up 
I went to a garage sale. I bought a bike, and I signed up for um, a half triathlon because I knew that I was going to be there for the whole summer, and mentally I could not. I just didn't feel like myself because I didn't feel like I had value because I wasn't training for something and I wasn't being challenged by something in life. So, I mean, I got in the pool and I'm like trying to swim and I'm like, how do these people swim like this? So <laughs> I ended up hiring a swim coach and then with a swim coach, just in a matter of a few hours, the way that they teach you how to be efficient with your body movements and and especially your efficiency with breathing I heard when you podcast with Cowboy, um, he was talking about his deep sea diving mm-hmm. and how you learn, you know, you can really learn how to do that. And I think Shane Dorian talked about that too, didn't he? With surfing, how to hold your breath. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And being efficient with your breathing. And then also for me, having a training regimen, it, it allowed me to only practice once a day or once a week and not worry about the fact I couldn't do it once a day because I had those other days where I at least had a routine and I found worth in being challenged by something. And I think when you don't do that, you just start to feel like a slug. I mean, Mm. you start, I think you, I think if you're not being challenged and you know, I, a lot of times I go to the gym and the nicest guys there are the guys that are pushing the biggest amount of weight. Or you look at some of the fighters, like Jim Miller is so nice. I mm-hmm. love, I mean, that guy's a great guy. Hopefully he wins here in a few weeks. Um, or a week, I guess 10 days from now he's fighting, isn't he? Yeah, um, he's fighting another great guy. He's fighting Tiago Alves, who's also a great guy. So <laughs> it's hard for me, man. Yeah. And those things happen. I'm like, well, I hope uh, hope it's a good result. <laughs> I don't know what to say. Yeah, that's, that's a tough situation. Yeah. But I think having having the ability to be challenged in life just completely changes your aspect daily. And guys that are able to, not necessarily guys, but people that are in CrossFit and they go in every morning and they bang out workouts. I've got a friend of mine, Tim Collins and his wife, they work out every morning at 4.30. They go to CrossFit because they know that they can do it and their kids aren't like having to go to school yet and everything. And they can they squeeze it in so that they have a routine. Mm. And I just think it like I think it just completely changes your soul if you're able to take out aggression on a workout sometimes. Maybe some of these people just never do anything to where they can release any of that frustration. And that's why they're so frustrated with just life in general. There's definitely a lot of that. There's also distractions and things that just aren't empowering. You know, people get distracted with a lot of stuff that's not empowering because the mind needs something to focus on. And something sometimes those non-empowering things can actually be negative in your life, like gambling addictions and things along those lines. Like a lot of times people are just looking for something that's uh, they're taking a risk, something that's exciting. like some, And that's, yeah. I think, where a lot of gambling addictions come from. Well, people that are like have no reasons, like how about the people that do shoplifting mm-hmm. and they've got no reason to, but it's almost like they just need a risk or a challenge so much. You remember when Renona Ryder did that? Yeah, exactly. Multi-millionaire, movie star, just decides I'm going to steal this underwear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think there's the thrill of the thing. 
you know, and she's probably at the time in particular, she was super famous and she was probably living a really, really sheltered life. And she's probably being protected by agents and managers and going from movie set to movie set and probably on pills. And she's probably just thinking, like, I need something to let me know I'm alive. I gotta risk something. I gotta take a, I gotta do a crime. (laughs) (laughs) I gotta jack some underwear. Yeah, I, th- I agree with you. I think the mind is in a constant state of searching for excitement and solving puzzles and, and overcoming difficult tasks. And the you, you kind of measure who you are currently based on difficult things that you'd be able to figure out. Like say if you suck at cert- a certain something and then you get better at it you you develop this understanding of yourself based on I know that if I just dig in and practice something I can get better at it like that's one of the things that I love about archery I love that about archery because I can go back and think about when I first picked up a bow which was only a few years ago I was terrible and I'm not nothing special now but I can compare then to now and I'm like well this is a world away like I can go to a 60 yard target in my yard and I can stack those suckers in there now and I'm doing it the right way and I know what I'm doing thanks to John Dudley your form looks really good thanks to John Dudley (laughs) (laughs) well what was impressive was one um we we built your new Hoyt Defiant Pro Defiant yeah the 31 so this is your first time with an aluminum defiant correct mm-hmm. and you 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 really like it i might like it better than the carbon i think um well both of them are awesome there's uh, the there's the benefits of the carbon that you talked about as far as like the cold when yep. it's cold out it doesn't retain that cold the way it doesn't it's not cold to the touch the way aluminum is and the weight is a little bit different but uh, man, that bow is just so dead in the hand, which is a positive thing to people who don't understand what we're talking about. Meaning that when you release the arrow, you just feel like almost no vibration in your hand, no. and it feels just deadly accurate. I feel like I'm holding so steady with it, and I feel like I just when I'm releasing, when the shot's going off, that arrow is just flying like a laser beam, and it feels like there's no movement of the bow. It's like I'm I'm feeling the release, black. The the arrow goes off, and then it's just sailing perfectly down towards the target. You're you're actually in a point right now where you're dangerously close to be able to shoot like clean 300 rounds. You're <laughs> Adam. Adam Greentree. Adam Greentree just sent me a text. Texting Joe Rogan. He keeps trying to get me to come to Australia. Dude, you gotta live closer. <laughs> you live 14 hours away if you live in des moines i visit see i'm in <laughs> i'm in iowa it's a good place to hunt this cat wants me to fly across the fuck i'm that's Oops. okay we have we're allowed that we'll allow a little swearing on your podcast yeah um i think it's okay. adam's awesome i love that guy but uh it's a tough sell to fly 14 hours but once you get there you can shoot everything that lives yeah they just they're trying to get rid of things over there it's so different when you don't have predators you know yeah it's really cool I'm gonna go hunt with Adam. I mm. keep I keep saying, but it's it, I'm definitely gonna go. I definitely gonna go. Yeah, such a great guy. I remember. Um, so this was. I'm pretty sure it was back. I think I was still at Matthews, but 
I was doing some research because I wanted to find six people across the world that were really high-end bow hunters but weren't mainstream. Mm. And that was, so I wanted to find one in like all five of the major, major countries. So I called a lot of people. I started with the magazine down there. There was a magazine in Australia called um, Bow Hunting Down Under. And so I called um, Graham Cash. I think it was Graham Cash was the editor's name. And I said, out of all the people that you see submit photos and stuff like that to the magazine, I said, is there anybody that's not mainstream but is just a true diehard killer? Because I personally believe there's a difference between hunters and killers. There's a very limited number of a lot of people hunt, but when it comes to people that can close the deal, even, you know, if you just drop someone off in the middle of nowhere, they'll find a way to get it done. There's a very limited number of those kinds of people. Kinds of people, like if if Survivor was a real thing, like if the Hunger Games was real and I had to pick six, that's what I was out. Like if, <laughs> if there was a real life Hunger Games, right? I need to know if we get dropped in Australia... Who do I need to go find? And he told me about Adam. So I actually um, got Adam's contact number and I called him and we talked. And at the time I was working for a lot of different, I was coordinating a lot of different pro staffs. So I just said, Hey man, can I get you some trophy takers? Can I get you some carters? Can I get you, you know, can I, and I think we started on a Matthews. And then when I left Matthews and went to Hoyt, I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure I got him into a Matthews, but he I can't really remember that far back. But we've continually changed, and um, he's always had me on his... We constantly talk. He filmed for Knock On. He's in a Knock On. Is I he? think season two or three, Adam filmed. He, he shot, filmed from Australia? Yeah, I'm pretty sure oh, wow. he shot his world record with the Knock On, for the Knock On. What um, world record? That freaking crazy water buffalo he shot. Oh man, that thing's giant. <laughs> that thing's like it's like it's got two paddles growing out of its head. I think it's bigger than that. Yeah, it looks yeah. it looks like a guardrail on an interstate, like on a <laughs> bypass. That thing's so big. Well, Adam had a great uh, uh, Instagram story this past uh, well this fall, just just September, when he went elk hunting in Montana. By himself. Yep. Brendan Burns let him borrow a handgun because of bears. And uh, in one of the Instagram stories, you see him show the handgun as he's uh, walking towards the elk. So he shot an elk. He went full backcountry hunt by himself, I think, 12 days, right? Yep. Yep. So he's out there by himself 12 days and um, deep, deep, deep in. He went 20 miles deep uh, yep. off the road because that's... You know, if you want to do it right, you want to be away from everybody, that's the way to do it. But his Instagram story was incredible because every day he'd be, he'd had a little bit of service up there. So he was updating like five, six yeah, videos was cool. a day. It was addictive. Yeah. Yeah. It was addictive. Yeah. Really, really interesting stuff. I wish I, sorry if I don't do that. I think there's people that would want me to probably document what I do every day. I think people would realize how much archery I actually do a day if I did constantly did like what Adam did on that elk hunt. But man, I just have to like, I have to disconnect sometimes. 
I Disconnecting's do. important. I, I mean, I have to. But you, you um, don't want to. I mean, we love you, Adam. Though, yeah, you're awesome, dude. He is awesome. Adam dot Green Tree, right? Yes, Adam dot Green Tree dot Bowhunter, I believe. And we need pretty to sure on I'm Instagram. Gonna check, I'm gonna check real quick to make. We'll sure give you a shout goes. out, Adam. Yeah, he's got an awesome Instagram too. Even despite the, uh, I mean, uh, rather uh, on top of his Instagram stories. Yeah, yeah, he's certainly. Yeah, adam.greentree.bowhunting. Yep. That's his Instagram. Yep. And he's also an incredible photographer. And he has uh, first, he's got a photography only Instagram site where he takes a lot of like really high end uh, stuff. And it's first.man.image. First man being Adam. Yeah. <laughs> first.man.image. So creative with his mohawk. So I actually did a mohawk silly. once because I liked Adam's. Yeah? Yeah. You went with it? Yeah, I went with it. <laughs> I don't know how many gray mohawks there are out there, but I had one. <laughs> so it's time to let it go when your mohawk's gray. Yeah, I felt like Lars from Metallica. He like keeps growing like those six hairs out. And it's like, dude, just like you don't still need to be headbanging like Ooh. five hairs in the back. He looks like the um kind of looks like the guy from um the Green Lantern after he got after he got oh, the Ryan Reynolds? No, the one that got the yellow and his head got big and he like oh. kind of went with a super bad receding hairline with some pretty snarly hair. I don't know who that is. Me either, but we're <laughs> we're we're okay. two bottles in we're here, people. Two bottles in of wine and way off topic. Well, okay, let's but get hey, on topic. What is the topic, you know? Let's, Life. Let's talk let's talk about I want to talk about your shooting form because you've come a long way. So when Joe first started, do you mind if I talk about Please, where, what ahead. we worked on? Um, when Joe first started, you had um, a draw cycle. Like you would take your head forward. Like mm-hmm. when you pulled back, you would take your head forward to the string. So you'd kind of draw back past your head and then you would come back and settle in. And when you do that motion there, it starts to change things in your head position. And you also shot with a lot more facial pressure when you first started. And I think your lefts and rights were, they varied from day to day. And I think a lot of that was you were, you started with the kisser button just because it was something for you to think about. I think you had, you know, you, you didn't totally understand anchor yet, like exactly where you needed to be. So the kisser button was more of an anchor, I think. Mm -hmm. And we ended up, I left the kisser button on for the first bow that I built for you. But then by the second one, I could tell that you were focusing so much on your anchor position, like getting your index finger under that jaw and having your position correct on your anchor and then getting the the string at the tip of your nose. And once that started happening, the string was at the corner of your mouth without really having to think about it. Yeah. So then on the second bow that you did i took it off and did you notice right away you didn't say anything right away uh i I don't remember when i noticed it yeah but i noticed it yeah i think you noticed it after a little while but the thing with joe was you still um even though we walked through several steps on having the right shot it takes a long time to develop that into an actual habit Mm -hmm. 
So even though you knew the things that you needed to do, you can't do them all at once. And a lot of people get frustrated because they're making other mistakes while they're working on something. And you shouldn't be discouraged about that because has it been, how long has it been? Nine months maybe that we've been working? Probably something like that. So I would say right now your your form is at a position where if you really wanted to focus on like shooting a 300 round on a NFA face, I'm certain you could shoot a 300. Um, maybe not with, you know, you're not going to shoot a 60X, but you'd certainly shoot all those whites, mm-hmm. right? If you were shooting a five spot face on the top there, mm-hmm. you could keep it in the white for 60 arrows. Well, it all, it also, and it depends on how much I'm practicing and how much I'm doing it. Cause if I was doing it, like if I decided this was something I wanted to accomplish and I was working at it five, six hours a day yeah, every day and I wouldn't give myself any time off. You know, I'd probably get really far, but, you know, I'm very busy and I'm limited in my in my amount of time. But one thing that I've been really rock solid with is adhering to all the things that you've taught me. So when I do, when I use uh, the evolution, you know, I'm, I'm listening to everything that you say. I'm monitoring my foot position. I'm making sure my shoulders relax. I'm making sure... I'm not collapsing my shoulder. I'm making sure my anchor point is consistent. I'm making sure the string touches the tip of my nose. I'm making sure my elbow's up high. I'm making sure I'm pulling through with my back muscles. And once I've done that over and over and over and over again, now my brain is in the position where that's how you make a shot. So now when I go to a thumb uh, release, whether I go to uh, the knock to it, which I used a little today, or whether I go to that um, too simple, when I when I'm doing that, I'm not ever squeezing that trigger. I'm, right. Uh, my when I anchor, my thumb sits on that trigger, and all I'm thinking about is my back. Yeah. All I'm thinking about is my back. I'm thinking about and then yesterday was really important too. You really had me concentrate on relaxing my front hand, which yep. made a big dis- difference in the steadiness of my pull and also not seeing a lot of shaking from resisting, you know, because it's a weird thing. You're trying to be steady, but you're also pulling at the same time, you know, and I found uh, that really was a really good piece of advice yesterday, just relaxing my front hand a little bit more and really concentrating on that. But now when I'm pulling through shots, you know, and I'm practicing, if I get a chance, you know, I'm practicing two, three hours, probably at least four days a week. And when I'm doing that, I'm not making any bad shots. Yeah. I might be off a little left or off a little right. And sometimes I know when it's when it released, oh, that one was going to be bad. But it's still, I'm doing the shot correctly. It's just sometimes some variation of my front hand will move a little bit just based on, you know, I'm shooting 100 arrows or whatever, and it wiggles a little sometimes. But the execution is correct every time. I'm doing the right shot every time. That's super important to me because uh, it's easy to cheat. You know, it's easy to just decide. Archery is really easy to cheat. Yeah. I mean, it's almost like you really don't have to be held accountable for anything if you don't want to. Well, if you want to get a trigger, you know, and want to get one of those wrist calibers or, um, you know, those uh, wrist straps, 
with the little caliper Reese just whack that sucker when you want that arrow to go off. We were talking about Tim Gillingham. <laughs> I was watching Tim Gillingham oh, sorry, in Tim. this. Uh, well, listen, hey, he'll tell you. Yeah, he it, will tell it you. It works for him. But I was watching him, and it was him and Levi Morgan and a couple other dudes were in this 3D tournament. You know, they're shooting all these various 3D targets. And Levi, you know, makes it, executes his shot, looks like a world champion. And then you, you watch Tim Gillingham, and he's holding, he's holding steady. And then you see this like violent twitch, <laughs> like. And then he steadies himself again, and then he releases the arrow. And when he releases the arrow, thunk, right in the ten ring, yeah. it was a perfect shot. But it was like before it released, it was like, oh, oh, like he's barely hanging on there. <laughs> I mean, he that's how he does it. And in in his way, it works. And you know, I'm not going to argue with a world champion like Tim Gillingham, but what I will say is that I have reached uh, a new level over the last like I would say like month or so, like in particular, where I'm really starting to notice it where um when I'm when I'm releasing the when I'm centering my pin and I'm looking through the peep site. I'm centering the, the, the sight housing inside the peep. And I'm feeling the string touching my nose. And I'm pulling back. And the, I get that surprise release. That arrow thunk, goes right into that exact spot where I'm aiming for at like 60 and 70 yards. Like, man, there's not a whole lot of things more satisfying. I mean, well, today, I know how hard it is. Today we got, we went in the morning. Um, we, we went and we decided to shoot a few times before we went out and this is like five thirty in the morning and you shot three super X's on a brand new Vegas face. I mean, that's pretty satisfying to be able to pull back five thirty in the morning, five fifteen in the morning and just see three nocturnals just go right yeah. into the super X of each of the Vegas faces. That's, um... That's really rewarding too as a coach, but your front shoulder looks so good now compared to where it started. Now you do, what's really cool is you you actually, in a way you're stubborn because you don't want to fully commit to a tension activated release, but you utilize the silver back for getting your stroke and mm-hmm. then, so you use that as your warm up. Well, I just got a silver back last week. When you sent it to me, but before I got that silver back, um, I had committed to the evolution. I committed to the evolution only for months. Yeah, and I, I remember that most that, of the summer. Yeah, that was a big factor. It was a big factor. Um, but then it annoyed me. I was like, "Well, what's the difference between me using a silver back or me using a thumb release, a thumb trigger correctly?" Well, it's only like psychological. So I decided, well, I'm going to get over whatever that psychological barrier is. And I'm just going to make sure that that's how I shoot it. So there's not a doubt in my mind today. I didn't get an opportunity today. But if I had an opportunity on a buck within an ethical distance, I would have no problem executing that shot. You know, No different than if you set up a block target at 40 yards and said, can you hit that white spot in the block target? But like... I can definitely hit that spot. Yeah. And I felt that like way about a buck. And I know I'll be nervous. You know, I've been nervous before every animal I've ever shot. But I also know 
I understand that process now, and I understand um, concentrating on the fundamentals and the proper technique that's involved in executing a shot is uh, that's the key. That's the key to avoiding all that lizard brain that has you fight or flight panicking and freaking out and just trying trying to Gillingham that trigger. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, obviously I'm saying that not as an insult because he's an awesome archer and way better than me. I just, you know, his style is just very different than what you teach. Yeah. Well, I teach for the masses. You know, I wish, um, I wish some of these real non... I don't know. I wish I could teach some of these these techniques that people that are really impressive, exceptional archers that are super unorthodox. I wish you could almost have a pre-programmed where you know someone could decide: do they want to do they want to shoot like Tim, or do they want to shoot like me, or do they want to shoot like Cam, or do they want to shoot like Levi, or do they want to shoot like Rio Wild? Mm-hmm. All those are completely different forms. How does Rio Wild shoot? What is his? I'm not familiar with. I know he's super successful. A but. trend, of, a tremendous amount of weight loaded on the stabilizer, which makes him completely compact the front shoulder, and then from there he really he's leaned back, he's hitched at the hip because, because of all the weight he's carrying. Yeah, around. there's no physical way for him to hold that weight in front of that body without contorting the body. So, but what makes Rio so successful is, well, one, he's very strong mentally, but two, he is able to let that pin, he builds his form to where the pin and the bow is as steady as possible. I mean, he's almost like, have you ever seen an Olympic style crossbow shooters, like the crossbow shooters, where they kind of hit I didn't even know crossbows were in the Olympics. Oh, really? Crossbows? Like walking dead crossbows? Yeah. Yeah, you've never seen competition crossbows? No. They've got like big hats with blinders down the side. <laughs> and they they sit they sit and they kind of cock their hip way out and they kind of sit in like this and they got these hats with these blinders down the side and they'll sit there and it'll be like down and they're <laughs> the the crossbows are really heavy. Um, but they're just literally locking their body into a very contorted position where it's the most stable. Mm-hmm. And then they manipulate the trigger until they get a surprise shot, which is really what Rio does. He's completely compressed and he's hitched. And he's got a tremendous amount of weight so that the bow isn't moving because it's, you know, There's so much mass, it's hard to get the mass in motion, so Mm -hmm. to speak. So it's not going to stay in motion because you haven't got it in motion. And then he's able to just make a fist on a release until it fires. So all he has to do is make a fist. Is he using a thumb trigger? Yeah. Well, he bounces around. But he either, even with his hinge release... He's not pulling through the way that I would. It's mm. physically impossible because his front shoulder is so compressed against the spine. There's no way that rear scapula could move through. So then with a hinge, he's just moving yeah, his Yeah, he's having to roll it. Yeah, for sure. Now, we talked about Lee Lukoski because Lee Lukoski uses a release that I really like a lot. It fits my hand really good, the Target 4. 
And what Lee does is he takes the target four, and instead of teaching it the way you do, where the um, the thumb trigger fits sort of like right around near the first joint with Lee, he wraps that sucker way in deep, pinches his index finger and his thumb together, and then he just sort of manipulates his hand into a fist until it goes off. Yeah. It obviously kills a tremendous amount of animals. He makes some great shots. I saw this killer shot he made on his show the other day, a 60-yard shot on an elk, blam, right in the heart, perfect shot. But what's wrong with that? What What is wrong with like holding well, the target four like that and then squeezing it until it goes off? The further you get that neural knob into the thumb pocket, mm-hmm. what happens is when you start to get really tense and if you're in a pressure situation, you know, with hunting, with hunting it's like one shot. So it's not, I don't think it's near as as intense as when you're in a tournament and you're having to make 12 shots. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And especially when people can really start to see your mistakes change and you know that that's on a big screen. It's not like, you know, it's not like you're just shooting at something the size of a laptop for vitals either. You know, it's you're, you know that you can't miss the X or you're going to, you're not going to win a medal. So, I mean, you're holding a lot tighter, but when you get it deep in there, what happens is a lot of people, they start to compress the front shoulder and collapse the front shoulder. And then they think that they're pulling, but they're not really pulling. And then when they realize that they've been holding for a long time and that's real deep in there, they end up just almost making a fist to make it fire. Mm-hmm. Whereas the way that you shoot it and the way that I teach, by keeping that hand flat when you hold your release so that it's in that that middle row of knuckles you know your thumb is in a position where it, because you're not curling it around i don't feel like you really have to you have to punch it in that position mm-hmm. when it's straight you're keeping it in the exact same spot you're never moving the thumb you're just pulling you know that index finger along the base of your jaw or focusing on the tip of your elbow coming back and the way that lee's doing it a lot of people shot the target for that way probably 20 years ago on the circuit. A lot of people had that release buried way in there. And it's hard to say. He may have saw it done that way a long time ago. So that's just how he's, how he's done it. You know, a lot of people learn just by photos that they saw. And especially back then when there wasn't internet, it was really hard to see high-level archers because there was only a few magazines. Most of them, people couldn't get on a newsstand anywhere. And all these competitions that were happening with arguably the most accurate archers in the world, no one ever got to see them. Like, how many Mm. pictures do you get to see of Randy Ulmer when he shot competitive archery? Right. I mean, I've got one at the building but that that's pretty rare. You almost have to be there while it's happening. Yeah, yeah. And the people, you know, like that, the legend or the aura that's around Randy is from the people that competed against him. And he did things so different for the time. And everyone was trying to figure out why he was so good and learn from it. But it's not like you could go back and watch Bo Junkie. Right. And, you know, and like rewind it and watch 
the shot again. Everyone was like, you would go to a tournament and for 20 targets, you would see Randy Ulmer. And he might be like a target over there and you'd have to just like, you know, even pros would be watching him with their binoculars while he would shoot because everyone's like, okay, what's this guy doing that's so different? You know, he was like so different for the sport at that time. He really changed it. But nowadays you can just... And what was different about what he was doing? Well, you saw that. Did you see that picture of him today mm-hmm. at the building? Yeah. Look at his form. I mean, it's super. Perfect. It's perfect. But <clears throat> back then, was was there a norm like that? He had it before people knew what it was. So he figured it out along the way, and. People sort of started realizing, like, oh, this guy has a repeatable thing that he's yeah, doing. Yeah, people tried to duplicate successful. it. Mm-hmm. But see, Randy really, I think Randy sometimes struggled with finding releases that he could work the right way to get a total surprise shot. So, like, in that picture that you saw, if you look at it, his, his hinge release is actually reversed. Hmm. He's shooting that with, with one finger with it rotating the opposite direction of what they were supposed to shoot. If you look at it. That's crazy. Yeah, it was crazy. He did that so he could get a surprise shot? Yep. Yep. Wow. Because I th- I don't know this, and I think a lot of times when Randy would change things, he wouldn't admit that there was an issue. But I'd be willing to bet he struggled with target panic for a while, then he started showing up at tournaments where he'd have like nine different releases in his bag. And some of them were dummies. And some of them were dummies. But then I th- I think it almost got to the point where maybe he was starting to anticipate those. Like he was probably practicing enough to where he knew. Like you can feel skips or you can, he might be able to just grab it and know like this feels like number three or whatever. Right. So then he reversed the moon, I think, as a way to re-educate. Like to where it's almost tricking the brain of wait, how does this thing work? You know, it's kind of like when you shoot the, you know, when you shoot like a silverback for the first time, you have to hold the trigger down when you pull back, which some of that stuff from a mental aspect, like from, from a conscious slash subconscious aspect, having Something in your shot to where you're really having to focus on that process, it'll actually help you avoid fight or flight triggers. So the fact that you have to think, okay, this is my silverback. I got to hold this thing. Hold that freaking thing down. Don't let go. Like you're telling yourself that. And if you're telling yourself, okay, hold it down, pull back, anchor, keep holding it down, (coughs) keep holding it down, come into your peep. That amount of time is enough to almost reset a fight or flight trigger. Mm. Have you ever like looked into that? Like if you have like a fight or flight, you know, if this, if the conscious actually triggers something that's stimulating your, a nervous reaction, there are ways to reset, right? If you Mm -hmm. occupy the conscious with something that's not related to that, it'll forget about that because the subconscious doesn't trigger fight or flight. Only the conscious does. Right. Closed loop systems versus open loop systems is how Joel Turner refers to it. He's that guy that has that Iron Mind hunting website. 
I uh, bought his program because I wanted to see what it was all about. And it's very helpful. It's got some really good, interesting things that he teaches. But you wouldn't agree with a lot of it. One of the things you wouldn't agree with is the way he uses a thumb trigger release. He buries the knuckle. I mean, he buries the knurled knob deep into the knuckle, wraps his fingers around it. But when you look at him execute the shot, I mean, he's absolutely pulling through the shot with his back muscles. He just holds it differently. And uh, when he uses a index trigger, the same thing. He's pulling through the shot. And he talks about the extreme importance of an unanticipated shot, of a surprise shot. Yeah. And he also talks about uh, having that part these processes with. that you use... Uh, these these like mental um, sort of steps that you take, like with his, it's draw back and aim, get it done, and watch it to keep it. Those are these three things that he says. I think the get it done is like a positive affirmation. Draw back and aim is like, but it's occupying your conscious mind with these thoughts. Draw back and aim, get it done, meaning I guess you're, you're going to get it done. Watch it to keep it, meaning don't don't flinch, don't move. And they just pull, pull, pull. And he advocates, like, when you're thinking about pulling through the shot, think about it aggressively. Like, concentrate on the aggressive, like, pull, 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 blam, it goes off. And that keeping your mind occupied with those processes will uh, avoid target panic. Well, that part I agree with. But some of the the thought process I probably would... I would change if it was What's were interesting is he's a guy who shoots a recurve bow and he uses like Mongol style. He yeah. shoots with a thumb. How how can you even do that with a surprise release? I mean you have to let it go. You let it go. I can shoot a recurve with a surprise release. Yeah. If I can, don't shoot a clicker. You pull back and just let your fingers You're just relaxing go. the fingers to the point where it literally slips, slips. off like the a trap. The same door. way you learned how to do your mouth tab. Yeah. Yeah, because I shot my mouth tab the same. I would just relax my jaw until it was gone. Now, with that said, when you were shooting my bow, when you were practicing with my bow, and you were using the release that I like, which is the Target 4, you the way you did it, because I have a 28 and a quarter inch draw length, you have a 31 and a half. Yep. That's a giant difference. I mean, you're so much longer and taller than me that you really could barely use my bow because... Your shoulders, your scapulas sort of pulled in, your arms pulled in, your shoulders pulled back, and you really don't have the room to like expand. No. So what you would do in that position, you would slowly apply, you're pulling, I was you're slowly applying pressure. I was literally shooting like Rio. Mm. Yeah. Or like Lee, right? Well, I mean, well. Lee's kind of making a fist. Lee's posture is better than... Lee's posture is better than Rio's. Right, but his prin- the principle of slowly squeezing is yep. how Lee releases his shots. Yeah, yeah. And if and mentally, if you can do that, like I can, I can actually slowly squeeze a rifle trigger till it fires. Right. Some people cannot do that. Some people, once they start to squeeze, it wigs them out, and they just have to. They panic. They panic. Right. But isn't that something you can get over? Well, certainly. Otherwise, there'd be a lot of target panic. Well, how, target obviously, panic Lee's gotten over it, right? I mean, Lee is... I've uh, gotten over it. I mean, I had it. I've had... But I don't mean Lee had target panic. I mean, he's gotten over... There's no chance of... The way he's doing it, he's super accurate with that way. And he's killing big game 
under pressure with cameras on them. Yeah. I think I think some people are really good about if they're not good at something, they put they make it a point to overcome that because it almost feels like they're failing at something. So they they want to overcome it. You know, Lee may be super competitive that way where he just he knew that was the right way to shoot one or maybe he saw someone shoot it that way and he just said, I'm going to stay in here and work on this until that's how I do it. Well, that was how they used to shoot that release, right? They used to shoot that release yeah. by squeezing yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. When did that all change? Well, I don't... Th- I started doing it the way that I do it because when I didn't tuck it back there, it allowed me to pull with less effort to get it to fire. And I also started really keeping my hand flat versus making more of a fist. So when you tucked it, it took more effort to make it go off Mm -hmm. than when you have it just sitting on your thumb. And when I was tight, I couldn't really get it to go off. I felt like I was just pulling and pulling and pulling and pulling, but it would never fire. Because everything was so tense. Mm. I just feel like with archery, fluidity happens more natural when you're super limber. When you're not, when you're utilizing the most minimal amount of muscle, you're utilizing bone structure and you're using a super minimalized muscle to actually pull through that release. Mm. Because if you cock a release and put your thumb on it and push on it till it fires, it doesn't take much pressure. No, almost. I mean, not. it's so. I mean, the fact that you've got a seventy-pound bow pulled back, like this one's got a medium spring. Yep. Exactly. There's almost nothing. Right. But if you had to do that at full the, draw, in the how heart much of the diff- moment, how much different does that feel? It feels very different because first of all, there's all this tension. Like, well, no then, different than. So yesterday when you were shooting, I told you the one thing you could do better, because you were having a few left and rights, I said the one thing that you could do better is relax the front arm from the elbow forward. Mm-hmm. And Specifically the hand. Yep, specifically the hand. No tension. And when you did it, you were, you said, it's really strange that I'm trying to hold steady, but if I let all that go... And I'm relaxed and moving around. I'm actually shooting better than when I'm trying to control it. What was even more interesting is when I relaxed and tried to have less control, I was steadier. Right. Yep. Like my hand, I was just like, calm it down, let it go. And I felt like I was really kind of hovering like pretty much right over the X. And then as the shot would break, it would just go right in there. Yeah. And I think that's what most people that don't give it a, a fair opportunity, they miss out on. Mm-hmm. It's not, it's no different than weight loss. You know, I've got, there's so many success stories that come in that people that, you know, just start working out for the first time that listen to the podcast and maybe they just say, they take my advice of just, okay, just run one mile, you know, and then after you do that, time it and see if you can beat that time even if it's by a second the next time you run it you know just start out with that just start out with a mile the same's true with archery you have to start at some point and then 
take baby steps so that you eventually, just like with you, you get in the backyard, your front shoulder looks a hundred times better. It's not like you struggle now to keep it up. You know, for a while there, it'd be like, yeah, it's creeping a little bit because you're, I think mentally you don't know where it needs to be. Mm-hmm. It's not a habit yet. You, and and it's hard to think about the anchor and centering the peep and putting the tip of the nose if you're also thinking about your shoulder too. Whereas now you've done it so many times, your front, front shoulder's right. It's not like I need to talk to you about anchor. You grab the release the right way naturally. You're anchoring the right way. The string's... Other than one shot, one shot yesterday, I saw you draw back, and the string was at the corner. It was like past, it yeah, it was on the side of, of your nose. And as soon as you made the shot, I said, "What was wrong with that?" And you're like, the "String felt like it was on the side of my nose." And it's like, "Okay, that's perfect." Once you get to the point where you can actually start identifying those issues yourself, mm. th- then you've come to a new level as well. Well, I think another big thing that I talked to you about was standing up straighter and putting my back elbow up higher. Those yep. are, those are two big factors. And when I started doing that, my groups tightened up a lot. And then on top of the groups tightening up a lot, it seems like it took less and less time for the release to break. Yeah, your amount of effort and your timing is, I would say, at least 30% less. When your elbow is up to where you can really focus that pull on your rhomboids mm-hmm. more so than your lats and your and your rear delt. But when your elbow's low, you've got granted you do have a lot of power because you you do have biceps and deltoids when you're lower. But when you're up, it it's, as soon as you raise your elbow above your shoulder line, you're your rhomboid just starts to take that. You can feel that transfer to where that what's holding that up is like right in the center of the back. And that's the muscle that you need to utilize to pull through. And when you do it that way, the release is coming straight back. It's mm-hmm. not coming down and out. And it's just, it's skeletal and it's how our, you know, it's just how our bodies are put together. If you don't do it that way, you just don't have a choice. Well, that's also the difference between when you teach someone how to throw a punch correctly, you're teaching them how to throw a punch with their skeleton, versus uh, there's a lot of people that are very physically strong that can still punch hard if they walk over to a heavy bag. But if they ask me, am I doing this right? I'd be like, well, listen, you can hit someone very hard if they're going to be there yeah. when you throw that punch. Yeah. But that punch is this big, wide arm punch, and you're definitely not hitting as hard as you could yeah. if someone could teach you how to do it correctly. If you watch a guy like Lennox Lewis is a good example, former world heavyweight champion who was a big, giant, tall guy, and he had a, a right hand that when he would uncork that right hand, there was a timing involved and a turning of the shoulder and a snap, an extension in the end. And if you were there when that right hand straightened <laughs> out, good luck. Good luck staying conscious. You know, And it was just a beautiful technical punch. Tommy Hearns, another example. Tommy Hearns, when he would throw his right hand, he would. It was there was so much timing and snap, and it was so much skeleton behind it. You know. So is that what you teach to throw throw your skeleton? Yes, yes. When you teach someone, whether it's kicking or when you teach someone uh, how to punch correctly, you're teaching them with the skeleton. You are not teaching them with the muscles at all. Um, and matter of fact, if you talk, why haven't to a lot you of, told me that? 
Well, we never really did any martial arts training. Yeah, but <laughs> so much of what I talked with you about was mm-hmm. utilizing skeletal structure yeah. more than your muscle because your skeletal structure is repeatable. Muscle, there's days I wake up, I feel stiff, I feel sore. It's not my bones. Right. Right? Right. I mean, if you want consistency, bones are consistent unless yeah. you break them. Well, it's also the muscles that propel those bones. They have to do it in line with how the bones are set on the frame. Right. I mean, you, they, that doesn't change. And the, the way to get the maximum amount of leverage doesn't change. You could ramp up the amount of power if you put more meat in your legs and you have more uh, more power in your quads, your glutes. You push off more with your calf and your feet. You can absolutely accentuate correct power. But once you get correct power, your correct power, once you do correct technique for any kind of striking, whether it's kicking or punching, when you learn an elbowing and knees for that matter, once you learn how to do it correctly, then you can get stronger at it by hitting a heavy bag or by developing your muscles or by becoming heavier and bigger yourself. But until you learn how to do it correctly, you're going to reach a point of diminishing returns. Like say if you take some giant power lifter guy and uh, maybe you don't know anything but you're faking it. Like you're like, oh, I'm going to teach you how to be the best fighter ever. And you tell him, take him to a bag and have him close his eyes and start throwing windmill punches on the bag. <laughs> well, guess what? If you're there for one of those windmill punches, yep. you're still in a lot of trouble. He's a big, giant, <laughs> powerful man. But he's not he's not doing it correctly. Right. It's like he's he's missing out on the proper technique. Now, if he learned the proper technique and he has all that horsepower to go with it, it's very likely he's gonna be an incredibly powerful puncher and he's definitely gonna benefit from having that cleaner technique, more efficiency in his movement, he's gonna tire less. Yeah. Uh, it's it's gonna be much, It's efficiency. Yeah. Efficiency. It's no different than, you know, you can take a bow and put a super big cam on it. Mm-hmm. But if it's not really designed for that bow to where it's really utilizing the stored energy in the limbs mm-hmm. correctly, then it's essentially just a Hail Mary. Yeah. You know, and that's another thing that we talked about was um, like how many reps you, you put in too. I think there's a point of diminishing returns both in martial arts and weightlifting for sure. And even in archery. Like once your body starts getting really tired, like yep. you should step away from for a little bit, you know? Yeah, it is different. I think once you start to make bad, once you start to have bad technique, you don't want to imprint bad technique. With weightlifting, it's just true anatomy, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that's that's all, it's not like you're imprinting improper bench press, right? You're just to the point where you've got so much lactic acid buildup, mm-hmm. you're overtraining yourself beyond a certain point to where you're actually not going to get benefit from the workout. That said, you know, I think a lot of hunters could benefit from weightlifting, a lot of bow hunters in particular, because one of the things that we've been talking about over the last couple of days here, you and I, um, is draw weight. Yep. And what a controversy that is. Yeah, that's a good subject. 
Well, it's such a controversial subject because, yeah, you could definitely be overdrawn. You could definitely have too much draw weight and you could you could hurt yourself and you could wear yourself out and you won't be as accurate because it's really difficult and maybe you're going to point that bow straight up at the sky while you draw back because you can't draw back with that bow. Right, if you're contorting yourself. Yeah, yeah. And what we're talking about is someone like this new bow that you set up for me is what is it, 83 and a half pounds? Is it 83 or 84? 84. 83, 6? 83, 6. 83, 6. One of those, between whether a pound here or there. Point is, it's got a lot of horsepower. Yep. There's a lot of kick to that bow. Um, but one of the things that you and I went over this past summer um, when we um, shot bows at the Trump Tower... Thanks to our friend Donald Trump, who hooked us up. <laughs> Donald Trump Jr. hooked us up with a, a bow range. We were I was in um, Chicago for the UFC, and uh, John and his family came out and, and went to the UFC, and we got to shoot some bows in this garage, this gigantic room. I mean, there was room for us to shoot 100 yards in there. Yep. Thanks, Don Jr. Yeah, it was very sweet of him to do that. Appreciate uh, it. But... Um, what was my point? Um, poundage. Uh, oh, we did those ballistic texts. Yeah, with the gel. And I need man, to post. I should post those. What a difference! Heavy arrow, heavy arrows, and extreme poundage. My arrow was blowing through that stuff <laughs> and and bouncing off the cement yeah. wall behind it. Sorry, Don Junior. <laughs> it only t- blunted the tip of the rage. It didn't really do anything to the... The um, rage was impressive. The rage was yeah, I sold impressive. you on that. You did. My buddy Adam Kilgore made me some ballistic gel. Sorry, Adam, if I got you in trouble, you might have got that from work. <laughs> um, but, yeah, we shot some ballistic gel, and I was shooting about 67 or 68 pounds at a 31-inch draw, and you were shooting 80 pounds at your... Just, just say it's 28. Mm-hmm. And we were both shooting rages. I think it was 82 82 pounds was the last bow that you made for me. For the Carbon Defiant? Uh-huh. Yeah, that was 82. This one, 83.6. And we had gel that was the size of an elk if yeah. it was horizontal. Well, what it was was a, 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 a garbage pail, plastic right. garbage pail, like a standard-sized one, uh, maybe three feet high. So it was three foot thick of this ballistic gel, and... My arrow went through the plastic, through the ballistic gel, and went flying Through the plastic out. again yeah. on the way out. Ba-bloom! And, <laughs> and shot through and then bounced off the walls. Like, that is damn impressive. Yep. Yeah. And mine buried to the knock? Yeah. Yeah, it went to, like, a little bit below, a little bit, um, uh, you know, like, below the knock. It was 100% a difference between being able to pass through ballistic gel, mm-hmm. like, without, it almost seemed like without hardly slowing it down. Yeah. You know, another thing that sold me, too, was um, seeing that impact that uh, you had on that elk. Oops. I'm trying to swat this fly. And I'm <laughs> knocking over things here. Um, that impact that you had on that elk where you went through its body and then through the far the far shoulder, arm, yeah. the far arm bone, shattered it and it went down the path of the bone through and then the you marrow. pulled it out and it was pretty much intact. The tip was rolled. Yeah, the tip was rolled. But the blades rolled. were in, like... 
see some people get weirded out if their blades bend that's been something that people have actually tried to design from years ago this goes way back um i remember doing some testing with rocket arrowheads and when their blades were too stiff and too hard when you would hit bone there was so much pressure being put on the pins or the screws that hold the blades in that the pins would shear or the blades would just break. Whereas if the blades are a little softer, so, you know, hard enough to hold an edge, but soft enough to where they can contort, mm. then at least it's still cutting because it hasn't broke off. So if it bends, it may misshape, but it's able to work around bone and, and still pat, cut the yep, tissue. and continue to cut. Yeah. So well, I think if you're shooting a heavy arrow, like I'm shooting four ninety six grains. Yeah. And just under five hundred. Yeah, just under five hundred grains with it. Again, we talked about that heavy, heavy bow. I mean, it's just got so much power behind it that I think um, there's a good benefit to the giant hole. That that hypodermic leaves. There's a huge benefit to having two holes on an animal versus one. You know, if you, like, for example, I shot a hog and I posted the kill shot on my Instagram account at Knock on TV. And I shot a hog and they've got a real, this particular hog had a real super dense plate on the side of him. And I went through that plate, but because he was slightly quartering away, I went to the front plate on the other side. So it doesn't look like it got much penetration. But And when you say this pl- plate, for people who don't know, it's commonly referred to as a shield, right? Yeah, a shield. And it's a really thick, almost like a, like, like a shoe leather yeah. on the outside of their like neck a tor- area. Like a turtle shell, To maybe. keep them from getting cut up when they fight each other. Yeah, because when they fight and those tusks are flying. Yeah. That shield is the only thing that protects them. And but it's it's really difficult to break through. So it doesn't look like I got much penetration, but based off what I shot, I thought I'd I thought I got it pretty good. I'm pretty sure your bow probably would have you probably would have buried to the knock you know, you probably would have had the knock out the other side. I like to find out. I need to, need to find out. <laughs> need to get a hold of some pigs. <laughs> need to head down to Florida. We need to, yeah. We <clears> definitely <throat> need to whack some some piglets. But but what's important also is that even though I'm pulling back eighty three and a half pounds, whatever the hell it is, um, I wouldn't take someone to the gym and say lift what I weigh. Yeah. Lift. Do you, how, how We've made a long way with? around to get to this point, but yeah. this is the point of the whole subject is you, you can control that weight better than I can. I mean, I can certainly pull your bow. I would say you pull your bow with less effort than me. Well, that's why it upsets me when people go, why, and I'm not, why do you need to pull that back? I'm like, well, it's not hard for me. So I don't know. Well, why don't you watch me do it? Watch me do it. I'll do it a hundred times. Yeah. It's not hard for me, but I also lift a lot of weight. Yeah. Like when you you ask me, like, come watch me throw around a 90 pound kettlebell. Watch me press it over my head and do windmills with it. Watch me do rows and renegade rows and cleans and presses and all these different things. Like I'm used to manipulating heavy weight. So when I pull that 80 pound bow back, it's not to brag because a lot of people way stronger than me, but 
I'm plenty strong enough for that. Yeah. So when someone says you don't need that, you know, I I shoot a seventy. Oh, you you shoot a seventy. Well, how about we work out and you tell me if you're within twenty pounds of what I do? Because I bet you're not. Yeah. You know, I bet if I gave you a seventy pound kettlebell and I said I want you to do what I do with a ninety pound kettlebell and you have no experience whatsoever in lifting weights. There's not a chance in hell you're going to be able to do it. Right. You're going to hurt yourself. You're going to feel yep. super awkward. So what one person can manipulate easily, like Cam Haynes. He's another guy who takes a lot of heat for shooting 80 pounds. He shoots it easy. You yep. watch him pull it back. He pulls it back easy. It's not, yep. a, it's not a problem at all. I think people don't like it when someone's stronger than them. That's one thing. <laughs> and so they go, you don't even need that. You don't need that. You don't need it to kill an elk. You're right. You don't need it to kill an elk. You killed that huge elk in Alberta last year. With What were you shooting at the time because you had your shoulder surgery? Probably 55, 54, 55. Killed as dead as a doornail. Yeah. You know, I mean, it was perfect. Perfect shot right through the vitals. But the difference between that 55 pound and my pound, my 83. Two or the eighty-three pound is what you see when it hits that ballistic gel, yeah. and that's the same thing. If I hit a scapula going in, or if yeah. I hit something else, absolutely. I think that whatever attributes you have, like uh, you know, we were talking about uh, Josh Bomar the other day, that uh, the dude who got in trouble for the bear thing. That gorilla can throw a javelin way better than the average person. If the average person wants to try to hunt with a javelin. I would say. Oh, man, you're not going to be able to do that. But if you're a competitive javelin thrower and you also happen to be six foot two, two 240 pounds of solid muscle, yeah, he could probably do it better than you can. Yeah. You know, That's just a physical reality of being a person uh, that, that is a, a physically fit, physically strong person. And if you can do that, if you're a very physically strong person, there's a great benefit to shooting more power. Well, do you feel more unstable with lower weight? No. No, I don't feel more unstable. I mean, I've shot lower bows, you, lower weight bows before. It doesn't feel uh, stable. Does less it feel stable. less? It doesn't feel less? No. You know what it feels like? I feel like the bow, the, the arrow's arcing. It's like, woo, yeah. here I come. <laughs> it's like, when I let go, you know, when, I, um, when I'm holding that bow... And I pull back, and that release breaks. I feel like that thing is just rockets, just going. going. <laughs> it's going, and there better not be anything when it gets there. Yeah, you know, it's hell bent for leather. You know, it's yeah. just. I mean, it's gonna blow through anything. I mean, it's about as extreme as you can get in modern day archery. So that I, I feel like. Archery is difficult because it requires so much discipline. It's difficult because it's just so much more comprehensive when it comes to having all your your technique correct and your training, your mindset. There's so much more involved in it than just trigger discipline, which is involved in a rifle shot. Yeah. So there's so much more involved. But at the end of the day, you're also dealing with, like we were talking about Sharon's 700 hours that she had to put in because she wanted to uh, shoot this this deer and she had a low weight bow and she's yep. shooting a light arrow and she has a fixed blade broadhead. There's all these variables that, that they don't... They don't exist, they don't with, exist 80 with 80 pounds. Yeah. Those variables are gone. You know, So whatever you're... I mean, if Sharon and I shot the same animal in the same spot... 
her arrow's going to go into that animal. My arrow's going to blow through it and stick into a tree somewhere. Yeah. You know? Well, she was str- she was really wanting to have that 25-yard or less shot yeah. at a big whitetail, mainly because a big mature whitetail, you know, they can move. They move quick. So even if she makes a perfect shot, if he's moving... It's like rolling the dice, and she didn't want to take that. She didn't want to take that chance. That's very ethical. Yeah, though, very she smart. would. And her seven hundred hours comes out of ethics more than anything. That's awesome. I mean, and that's you taught her well, you know. But I think again, there's nothing wrong with shooting sixty pounds. I mean, you you absolutely can kill everything that moves if you can shoot sixty yeah. pounds. But there's this thing that people do. When you tell them you shoot 80 pounds, they go, why? Yeah. And why? Well, I'll go, well, what do you shoot, 50? You shoot 50? Why don't you shoot 40? Yeah. 40 seems easier. Yeah. Why don't you shoot 30? 30 is easier <laughs> than 40. Like, when when does it become the point yeah. of diminishing returns? Yeah. You know? And when they say, well, you can't do it cor- correctly or your form won't hold up, well, that's just not true. Yours certainly does. It's yeah. I would I would venture to say that it's easy to stereotype that the majority would not. Yeah, the majority would not. But you also have days. There's days where I've talked with you where you've shot 300 in a day, 400 in a day. Yeah. So, repetition wise, it's not like you're putting your bow away for a month and then coming and picking it back up. No. No, I don't. I don't think you should do that with anything you're trying to get good at. Yeah. I don't think you should do that with martial arts. I don't think you should do that with anything that you're that we're, anything is difficult and requires like you're creating a pathway with your 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 mind and your synapses and your muscles and you, and your technique and that that I think is one of the path one of the uh, parallels rather between martial arts and archery. Because you want it to be almost second nature. Like I find myself now, when I, I look down, I check my foot positioning, I click the release onto the uh, the D-loop, and then from there on I know what's going to happen because I've already done it. I'm just drawn yep. back, I settle, and then I just, I, I, I'm concentrating on less and less things because all the other things are more automatic. Subconscious now. Yeah. And that's yeah, only through repetition. Yeah. Well, it's through thinking and through excellent coaching by you, of course. But then it's also just through repetition. And that, that repetition is critical. For the people out there that bought a silverback and they're learning this execution for the first time, you should. what will help you most is if right now you get it set in your mind that this it's not going to fully happen overnight. There's going to be things that you do right away that you feel like you're doing better than you ever have. But then you're also going to have things that are going to not feel comfortable for a long for a long time. And you need to realize that just basic principles of psychology tell us that it it takes close to a month to develop new habits. And what you have now is a possibly for years and years has been a habit of doing it the wrong way so it's going to feel unorthodox but then there's also going to be a part where all of a sudden you do it right and you feel good about it but then there'll also be a time where all of a sudden you really get it it was probably actually it was chicago when you and i had worked together at your house we'd worked together in vegas twice 
and then in Chicago. But in Chicago, what the only, there the only thing you were doing that I changed was your elbow position, mm-hmm. and I started talking to you about that preload and mm-hmm. that you know you were pulling with that lat down through, and it clicked for you there. And it seems like since then you've had you you can get you almost understand what I'm trying to teach. I don't have to be there to actually teach it. And that's that came from nine months. It's not like you know. Even if I would have been at your place every single day, if I was there every day for two weeks, that doesn't mean you would get it. Like now, when you make a mistake, you actually. I know or, what the mistake is. Yeah, you're computing it in your own head. There's a couple things that I did that are also really important that you taught me. One is blank bailing. Um, yeah. One of the things I like to do um, when I'm at home, I like to warm up, but I get I get like 20 feet in front of the block target just to warm up. And I'll do like some little spins with my arms just to get all the blood flowing, get everything yeah. loose. And then when I warm up, I just pull it back. And just let that release go out. Just snap. Yeah. Let it go off. And I'm not worried at all about where that arrow's going. Yeah. I'm just pulling it back. And all I'm thinking about is that proper release. I'm getting really close to it so I can't miss. And I'm pulling back with my rhomboids. And I'm feeling it. Pop, pop. I'm feeling it break. That is a big one. That's a real big one. Another one that you taught me that's really important that I did a lot of is I took a handle and I cut a piece of string loop material yeah piece of loop material yeah. um or you know uh, winner's choice material to the exact size of my draw length yeah and then i attached it and i'd be sitting there watching tv and i'd set my you know anchor and i just pull it through and click and then i'd click it again yeah. and pull it through and click and i got this device that i was using for a little while that was like a handle, and it has like elastic on it, and you, you, you like it has some resistance, mm-hmm. but I didn't really need that. The resistance wasn't really that important because I wasn't trying to develop strength in that. What I was really trying to do was just get it to go off correctly. Right. And I found it felt better to me at least with an actual uh, Hoyt grip, and you know just having yeah, because then you're duplicating what you feel on the bow. Yeah. And just doing that over and over and over again. And I had to adjust it a little bit because maybe the string was a little bit too short at first or too long. But um, that made me just really feel that pop, that release. You know, as it sets in, snap. I just, that that feeling that you get when a, when a release breaks correctly. And it's not expensive. It's easy. And you can do it without even going to the range. And uh, one of the things that sunk in my head was you were talking about how one of your best competitive years, you were working a lot and you didn't really have a chance to yeah, go to the range Yeah, I hardly ever much. shot my bow. I, all I ever shot was a piece of string in my office. But you got better doing that, and I think that helped me a lot too. With visualization. Mm-hmm. That was really important. I think that can help anybody, and it's so cheap. You know, it's just uh, you know a few cents for a piece of string and a, a Hoyt grip. Yeah. You know, and uh, the one, you know... The one thing is just make sure that it's the right length, you know, and adjust it, readjust it. Make sure it's the exact right length so that you're anchoring the same point that you would if you were shooting a bow. And just do it over and over again. And that that alone, I think, if you could just spend a few minutes, like, 
And I would watch TV with it, and I would watch like hunting shows. Yep. So I'd be sitting there watching hunting shows just pop, and just thinking about you know having that release go off. Correctly. When you're watching all that boring B-roll of like a deer walking across the screen, <laughs> a you creek. just like pull back, put your thumb straight up in the air, and just put your thumb on it, and just be like, "Damn." Yeah, pretend that thumb is like a or the le- or the leave like floating down the river for like project <laughs> dropped and you're like holy crap another, oh project another, drop they get you another le- another leaf going down the yeah river. how about drop off some food dude let's stop <laughs> this it's like it's you got a cameraman he's got a camera but you didn't bring food <laughs> listen bring food i like what you're doing it's great to watch people go hunting but i don't like watching people starve to death you're freaking me out man <laughs> This all could be avoided, you know. They'll they could drop a barrel of food off a parachute, you know. They they could get the food to you. This is 2016. We need to um, we need to podcast again Friday because my buddy EJ. Did you listen to the podcast yes, with yes. EJ? He's gonna be here. EJ is gonna come through because he do actually, it. he drew a governor t- or no he drew a um, uh, Iowa tag. But he's he's gonna be hunting about an hour and a half away, but he wants to stop just for a night to kind of check in. We need to we need to do a podcast because he, he's a genius. He's a mental genius. Well, let's do it. All Definitely, right. we're gonna and do it. We're gonna do one of mine from here too. Oh yeah, we we'll need do to do one that. of mine. Maybe people have always wanted to see the dojo. I've never let it be seen. Something should remain a secret. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think? You're it's in- awesome. It's it's very John Dudley esque. John almost has he has too many trophies. Like he doesn't know what to do with them anymore. They're all stacked up. It's it's amazing when you really think about the fact that you've done all this with a bow and arrow. I mean, you, you this is like, I mean, this is only one one fraction of all the different trophies <laughs> that you have in the house. But man, it's damn impressive. You know, I mean, everything from mule deer to white-tailed deer. You got antelopes here. You got moose and bears. And it's just it's a crazy collection. And, and then uh, the uh, faces, the uh, targets from uh, accomplished tournaments where you won. It was pretty awesome looking at these tournaments and these little points where those the X's are all blown out. <laughs> Some of them. Like a truck stop hooker. Jesus, are we gonna gonna end on that? (laughs) Did I go too far? (laughs) What I, you know, what gets me though, man, is feathers. Like people that mount turkeys and feathers. I just don't. There's, there's a line that I draw, and that is the line. People that like mountain turkeys, full blown turkey mount. Yeah, just get out of here with your full blown turkey. (laughs) (laughs) I got one. I have one. You have monster turkeys on your property too, by the way. That They're thing, everywhere. That was like a T Rex with feathers. This morning we're hearing. Blah, 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 blah. Did you do a thing where you said that um, some of the Velociraptors actually had feathers? They believed that. Yeah, I did a podcast recently with this guy Trevor Valley, who is a paleontologist. He uh, works at the uh, La Brea Tar Pits, and um, he's worked. He does a show for the History Channel as well. And um, they are now, they now believe that the velociraptors may very well have had feathers and many other dinosaurs might have had feathers as well. They just, uh, they find um, these fossil evidences of uh, different feathers on different creatures. And so it's leading to speculation that more dinosaurs 
had feathers. And they think that, like birds, I mean, look, if you saw an eagle, if somebody burned all the hairs off an eagle and you just found it laying there, you'd be like, look at this crazy lizard thing. Oh, my God, it can fly. You know, I mean, that's what we see when we see those yeah. things. We don't necessarily know if that's what a lot of those flying creatures look like because we really we only have fossilized soft tissue. We have very little feathers. But now yeah. they're starting to find more and more of that stuff. And they, there's there's a lot of a lot of reason to believe that they share characteristics with uh, modern birds. So would you like would you ever mount a duck if you shot a really cool duck? Nope. Take a picture of it maybe. <laughs> I mount <laughs> I mount my fans because I really like to slide those in my Dave Smith decoys. Oh, well, that makes sense. Yeah, the fans you need you need to you need to like have a real fan. Yeah, and they're pretty okay. easy. You just flush them out. You pin them on a piece of cardboard and then let them dry in that position, and then you slide them right in your Dave Smith decoy. That makes sense to me. That yeah. makes sense. Yeah, but like if you're one of those dudes who like takes a pheasant and and you, you mount it. You got a stuffed pheasant. And then you pet it in Go your get room. a better hobby. <laughs> oh, I have a dove. I shot a dove. I'm going to mount my dove. I'm just kidding. If you're one of those dove hunters is like, hey, man, I like mounted doves. Just mount your Go dove. Go with it. Yeah. Don't listen to me. I'm an idiot. Why, why are you getting mad at me? Yeah. You know what I don't like, though? Um, <laughs> I don't. I don't people get mad at me. I, I like European mounts. I don't necessarily like these body mounts because my brain can't get over the fact that that's plastic those are not as real eyes that's not as real nose that drives me crazy yeah and even though they try to get close it doesn't look like it doesn't look like because animals have personalities yeah like they have a demeanor and sometimes a taxidermist doesn't necessarily capture the demeanor of that moment Mm. so it almost like changes it it definitely changes it you know um like there's just the the bodies there's the standard bodies that they have they just stretch your skin over a standard body so like when you see a mounted head if people don't know this but that is not there's nothing in that thing other than the antlers that's that animal and oftentimes people take skin the skull. Is. Yeah. What did I say? Just the antlers. Oh. The skin is. The skin is. Yeah, the outside skin. What I meant was like all the inside stuff where you see all the muscle and the thickness. That's just a piece of foam. And then the eyes are fake. And, and it's the, the same skull, for everybody. The skull's fake on a lot of them. You know, on a lot of them, what they do is they cut off the skull plate, right? Just they the take cap. the antlers. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah for so sure. That's, uh, that's, it's just weird to me. I don't. I don't enjoy it. It just I, but I really like a European mount. I really like what you've done. Where you you spray paint them? Yeah, I don't bronze. Know if I would them. do that. You paint them. What do you paint them with? A hammered bronze. Ooh. We're gonna they do your. Cool. We might do yours that way. It looks cool for sure. But also that looks cool there. That white tail down yeah. there with it's all white. I like bone. You see that one? Mm-hmm. That one came off of where we sat today. That's a big, big buck. <laughs> I'm gonna go get it yeah, go and let him it. hold it because he's he's a little bit upset that I made him pass a few no, deer. No, I'm not. I'm not. We he only made me pass one, to be honest with you. But it it was a very nice buck anywhere else. But it wasn't this. <laughs> it wasn't this sucker. Oh my god! 
Then what is this? Let me guess. Let me guess. This is like uh, 175? I would say he's a little less. 170? Ma- yeah, maybe gross. Maybe gross. God, it's huge. That's awesome. that's what I want you to shoot. Yeah, well, I would love to shoot that too. That's an awesome, awesome animal. Massive character, like all this stuff. I want to see that fanny pack going up and down with <laughs> excitement. <laughs> yeah, this is a gorgeous skull too. I mean, see, like when I'm looking at this skull, I know that that is that actual animal that you shot. You know, that that's is true. That's his actual skull. Yep. So I European mounts to me are uh, the most representative of the actual event or the actual animal itself. Not not hating on anybody who does it for themselves. I know a lot of people love it. They love to set up. Uh, I got a buddy of mine. He's got a crazy. Uh, oh, you know Brian Stevens. Yeah. Brian Stevens has a ridiculous trophy room, and he's got a, an indoor archery range. It looks like it used to be a bowling alley. And uh, he, he set it up and turned it into an archer range. He's got all these cool animals mounted all around him. You know, I, I love people's trophy rooms. It's just, for me, I like skulls. You know how I think about it? Well, because you, I did a European mount on that big one I just shot. A lot of people be, like, mad at that. But I look at it as, for 800 bucks you can you can almost go i can buy my montana tags for that almost to get it mounted yeah yeah by the time i mount something i can buy one or two tags somewhere yeah it's a good point so for the people who are like hey man i can't well you know people that smoke and drink in the bar every day can't afford a lot of stuff either but i don't do that stuff so that's how i afford to have decent places to hunt and put in food plots. Well, I it's think. just a personal preference. Yeah. Thing. Yep. And, you know, honestly, I have to be uh, forthright about it. I came, uh, forthcoming about it, rather. I, I came to that conclusion after hearing Steve Rinella say it. Because Steve Rinella, uh, all of his stuff is European mounts. And I said, how come you have all your stuff is European mounts? And he goes, uh, he goes, I, you know, I don't, I don't, I just don't like the way they look stuffed. It just looks fake. And I'm like, yeah, it does look fake. And then I start thinking about it. I'm like, yeah, that's a piece of foam under there. Yeah. Those are fake eyes. That's a fake nose. Yep. Like, but the, the antler's real. And if you see the antler on the skull, to me, I don't know. And again, it's just preference. I just think it looks cool. Yeah. Uh, everybody's feeling bad now. Those people looking at their mouths. Going, no, they're not. Hey. They're, you know what I thought? <laughs> One time, um, I'll tell you a story. One time I... Um, I was talking with Jeff Foxworthy, and this was way back when I built a bow for him. And he, uh, he, we were kind of talking about the same subject. And I said, you know, I said, you know, it would be a good bit for you. I said, why don't people do like freezer mounts? I said, because if you had a freezer mount, you could just, it'd be the real thing. And it's cheap. And I said, you really only have to take it out when your friends are over. But if you if you just had a big ass freezer, just kept all your stuff frozen in there, solid and dead. Yeah, as long as you had a party from like nine to midnight, you could have an awesome trophy room. <laughs> just don't like pull an all nighter. You just do freezer mounts. Yeah, but with a freezer mount, well, you won't. You don't want to have the meat because you want that neck meat. 
That's where you get your burger from. Yeah, that's the bur. Well, tonight we had elk burger. Today we had elk loin. That was very good on the Traeger. Very good. I know you're not a Traeger user, but I'm. Well, I love those those pellet grills. I'm trying to convert. I'm trying to like convert me. Throw well, some ninja Traeger Jedi. Makes, they make great. Uh, I started out with Green Mountain Grills, who also make a great one. What I use is a Yoder, and the reason why I use a Yoder is because Yoder has a direct heat option. It gets hotter than most of them. It gets up to 600 degrees. Most of them top out at about 350 or somewhere. This one's 430 today. That's a good one. Yeah. Some of them top out lower, but the Yoder tops out at 600, and you could swap out the, the grills and put it onto a grill grates. And when you put it on the grill grate, the fire blows underneath it, and it allows me to grill just like a charcoal grill. Yeah, and you can sear. Yeah, you sear some it. stripes on there. Mm-hmm. Some yeah. zebra stripes. But well, I'm a big fan of those pellet grills, though. Ours did. We had zebra stripes on our. Yeah. Those things were deluxe. I posted a picture today on Instagram with like a with my fork and just a perfectly pink elk tenderloin. That was me and Joe's lunch. It was very. Yummy. That was when Joe wanted. To leave the stand <laughs> and the biggest deer of the day like walk by, by it's... five minutes like literally no, I'm, it might not even have been five minutes no because i you got to the ground and i just started to pack my bag and all of a sudden i look up and i'm like and then you're doing the bullwinkle thing swapper <laughs> <laughs> came by but it was fun well we got we got a few more days here so yeah, I'm, we I'm got excited. we got a few more days. And we did a podcast. Look at that. What do we got here? One fifty two. We're dang near to JRE. Very impressive. Very impressive. You got the record for the knock on podcast. Is that the record? One fifty two. Possibly. Like I think I feel like you've reached that before. I've had a few early mornings where I've gone on some rants, but I don't know the official. When um one time when I was talking about Foxworthy's bow. He called me, and he called me at Matthews, but he called me on my cell Well, he called me on my cell phone, and I was just walking into Matthews, and we had a steel building, so the cell phones wouldn't work. So I said, hey, man, um, I'm just walking into the building. I said, can you call, just call the main line? And he's like, oh, okay. And I said, I go, do me a favor. I said, just say it's Jeff. I said, don't say it's Jeff Foxworthy. And he's like, why? And I said, because I don't want a bunch of people like, because whenever they'll hear someone famous, they like every, you know, all the people in customer service are like wanting to listen in on the call. So I said, just, just say it's Jeff. And I said, they'll put you through to my office. And he's like, okay. So I'm like halfway to my office and I hear the girl get on the intercom and she goes, she goes like, John. Brad Pitt on line one. Brad Pitt on line one. (laughs) (laughs) And there was like 10 girls just like looking through the glass window. Like, oh my God, was that Brad Pitt? No, it was Jeff Foxworthy. Okay. Oh, big letdown. (laughs) (laughs) That's hilarious. He's, He's a serious bow hunter, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks everybody for tuning in. You got anything you want to say? We will be back, hopefully, um, with stories of success. We need to do a live feed shooting our bows. Okay, yeah. But we'll that'll, be, out. that'll be post-tag punching. Post-tag punching. Yeah, we're... Okay. Sorry, Sounds people, good. you're not important enough to occupy hunting time. We've got stuff to do, folks. we got a task. 
We have got to make it happen. We have a task at hand, and we have two empty bottles. Someone emailed Sharon and said that they're sending wine bottles so that I'll do a podcast. <laughs> so <some> takes. <laughs> hey, takes wine. we will do it for whoever sent it. I forgot his name, but I I'll give you a shout out once we get it. We're definitely gonna do a podcast if there's if there's wine here. Thanks everybody. Pre- hope you um, learned something today. Appreciate it so much. Knock on everybody. Knock on. Be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock-on lifestyle clothing. knockonarchery.com